Everything's bigger in Texas. That definitely includes real estate. Kim Dieter and I donned our quarter zips and unpacked the Austin, Texas market. Is Austin real estate overpriced? We dug into that. Kim also walked me through the wildest deal in which she has been involved. And she has never been accused of being a rule follower. Kim flipped the script and surprised me with a few questions. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott, joined today by Kim Dieter, Director of Short-Term Finance at Lima One Capital. Kim, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So walk me through Kim Dieter. Who is Kim Dieter? I know you're at Lima One Capital. You run our short-term underwriting. That is a massive behemoth of a ship. But walk me through how you got here and, and some of your background. Well, outside of this headset, which is from the 90s that I brought with me in a backpack, my Jan Sport, I am, I've been in sales and operations my entire career. been doing new business development from the very beginning, operations to at every level, um, given my, my background. I have been doing real estate since I was just a, a wee kid. So my mom, my parents were divorced when I was young. And so my mom got into real estate investing fairly early into my childhood. And so the weekends when my mom had us, we spent, my sister and I spent helping her fix and flip homes. So that was how I got into the industry. I didn't know it, but um, at an early age, that was when and progressed along the way. My family owns a luxury construction company in Austin, ran that with them for six years and been in finance for what seems like a while now. And um, on the real estate side for, gosh, about five years in totality in the private lending space. But that's that's going to be the gist of it. But capital markets and running startups, everything in between is my background. Taught myself how to underwrite by raising capital. Yeah, you, you've worn a lot of hats over the years. You know a lot about a lot. And you mentioned Austin, Texas. And that's what I'm going to pick your brain about today. So knowing you're a Texan and there's some sensitivity here and knowing I'm, you know, we're going to be at a conference in Texas next week. It'll be a couple of weeks before this episode airs. So you're going to have to watch my back after I ask you this question and maybe you'll have to watch yours after you answer it. Is Austin, Texas real estate overpriced, right? Austin's been the headline grabbing real estate market since COVID broke out with insane HPA just prices up and to the right. And so let's start with that. Is Austin, Texas real estate overpriced? Quick answer is yes, but you have to look at the reasons why. It can't just be like a yes and and we walk away and say it's overpriced. We know that there's people moving there and that's why. There are a lot of other contributing factors that aren't often spoken about. It's a lot of like, you know, Tesla's moving to Austin, Charles Schwab moved to Austin back in 2018. PIMCO opened up one of their huge um, satellite offices out of New York. It's bringing a lot of infrastructure and new businesses to Austin. But also additionally, what we're not talking about as a, just in totality across the real estate industry is how much the institutional markets are buying up community developments, essentially to put renters into um, these their home, the homes that they're purchasing. So what once was a $250,000 homes, you know, scooped up by an institution when they scooped up 300 of them, you know, could be going back on the market. And, you know, that that's going to definitely change the price. There's going to be dictation with that too, because supply is going to be much smaller. And so 
So the demand for any single family residence is going to extremely exacerbate this problem of pricing a lot of people out of a home in, in Austin, what would be affordable 15 years ago. How do you, so underwriting, that that's your bread and butter in the daily role. How do you and your team account for that? You know that a market is kind of overheated a little bit. How does that factor in to, to underwriting? So th- that's a great question. I love Texas. I love certain markets of Texas. I don't love all of Texas real estate markets. So Austin's a really unique place to underwrite. A lot of the projected ARVs in an appraisal are going to come back much lower than what the actual ARV is going to end up hitting. Just because of that, like I said, the things that we're not talking about, contributing factors to supply and demand with institutions and entering our space at a mass scale in terms of buying up rental portfolios. So that's that's dragging down a huge part of the conversation that we're not having. But I think ultimately, you know, when we underwrite a deal, we have to look at what we perceive that value to be and think critically outside of what we know um, and not just look at the facts. So it's fact-based and it's also going to be searching on the growth and economic development trends that we're seeing within those areas. So I make my underwriters do certain aspects of, you know, kind of global searching outside of what would be a typical review of a file. You know, what are there businesses moving to certain areas? Does that increase the value? Um, does something move away from from a, a particular neighborhood? That's also going to affect values. So both good and bad, something moving away can definitely increase home prices. So taking a look at that are, are huge components on how I underwrite anywhere. What's going on? What's going on in that environment is huge. That makes sense. Is there any concern about the Austin real estate market? I think it would be too simple to say just because something's overpriced that it's on the edge of a cliff. I don't get the sense that Austin real estate is kind of towing up to the edge of a cliff that it's going to fall down, but what what's your take and why? No, I don't even think we're remotely close. We can you can use California as a basis and relative kind of size and scale to compare to. The difference, though, is that where California is more condensed, Texas is more spread out. And there's so much undeveloped land and opportunity. I don't see this being as big of a factor. One, because Texans are used to commuting. This is not a big component to to Texans at all when finding a home. Driving 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half to your office is not something a lot of Texans take into consideration when purchasing their first home. So going more rural and outside of the main city limits isn't going to be a prohibiting factor, which is what builders are having to do to build homes that you can't purchase for fix and flip anymore within the Austin city limits. Got it. And how how's Austin broken up? Like walk me through Austin as a city. What what neighborhoods? Like can you can we get granular? Ooh, are you talking food neighborhoods or I mean just neighborhoods in general? We can talk St. Edwards neighborhood and which is gonna be in the Travis Heights area, which is where my alma mater is. Did not go to UT, I went to St. Edwards University, so we'll shout out to the Hilltoppers. And what's a hilltopper, real quick? It is actually it's a goat. It is a is a tiny Tiny billy goat. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I know what you're getting for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait. Is it a goat? <laughs> it's a hilltopper. I have, I have a few of those, but yes. That's what's crazy about Austin is the markets that are that are high demand are naturally going to be, the most expensive are going to be closest to the city. 
and downtown. And then you, from there, you have smaller neighborhood pockets around areas. So UT is going to be another pocket area where you're going to have Hyde Park, north of, you know, West Campus. Again, St. Edward, you'll have Travis Heights. You'll have areas in Barton, Barton Creek area, anything around Zilker Park. So all of these different areas in, around Austin or the Austin neighborhoods. And they all, what's crazy about Austin too, is they all have a different feel and vibe to them. So you'll have a very different cultural kind of neighborhood curation, if you will, than you would in most other cities. So it's a, it's a unique place to come from and especially watch the real estate market change and adapt. Yeah. My sister lives in Dallas and the, the time I've spent out there, you, you see that kind of neighborhood vibe, even in areas around there. There's was it like Lower Greenville has a very Ashevillean vibe to it. And it's like, it's like you plucked Asheville and plopped it in the middle of Texas. It wasn't like that though, 10 years ago. It wasn't like Lower Greenville, like not, not the same place it is today. Oak Cliff in Dallas, even like not the same place it was 20 years ago. Very dangerous neighborhood 20 plus years ago in Dallas. Now one of the most, Bishop Arts District in Dallas, up and coming 10 years ago was that neighborhood. Those home prices now upwards of 700K. 10 years ago, 250, you know, let's just call it what it is, gentrified neighborhood. And so we're seeing that and you're seeing that a lot in, in these larger Texas metros is a lot of gentrification, unfortunately. And I think that's another topic we don't actively talk, talk about in Texas real estate is so what's the actual state of things happening when we're making these big moves um, real estate wise within a city. Yeah. So what out like outside of Austin, just take Texas as a whole, what cities, what neighborhoods like pique your interest? If you were deploying capital in Texas, if I said, Kim, here's a hundred million dollars, go, I I know. Yeah, I wish. Kim, here's a hundred million dollars. Go do some real estate investing in Texas. How are you divvying that up? What markets are you looking at? What product sets? What's attractive? I'm going, this is going to be an odd answer. I don't even think the listeners at home are ready for this one. I'm deploying a lot in San Marcos. Reason being, Texas State, San Marcos is, it's like College Station. But the the thing that makes it very different is it sits right in between Austin and San Antonio. Big college town, has the great outlets, but it's right in the middle. And so it's a great middle ground for college students to be able to come from and commute, but even have family in, in either location and be able to live close by. Also, and, and how I would deploy that too, as you say, is like I would build a, a multifamily. Truthfully, is, is a kind of a more luxury line, higher end college style multifamily that definitely suits the needs of college students in that area. It's the same thing of how West Campus at UT came about. Um, the higher end students or higher higher income students had the ability to pay for the nicer apartments. And so there's definitely a need as lower income housing has been a main focus of San Marcos and the city. There's an alternative focus that investment investors haven't been looking at to take opportunity on. And, and that's where I would hit up to San Marcos to deploy a lot of capital. Alternatively, too, I would look at Fort Worth. It's just booming in terms of what all the companies that are moving there, infrastructure. The nightlife has always been there. It's always had cultural attractions. But now that you know we have a lot more corporations moving to the area, it makes Dallas, which is very outpriced, a much more favorable city for starter families to move into. Yeah. And you forgot to mention the two most important things about Fort Worth. You have the Dallas Cowboys and you have Billy Bob's Honky Tonk. 
two things that just tug at my heartstrings. I didn't happen to miss either of those. <laughs> that wasn't by chance. We will, we, we will, I will save everybody from a Dallas Cowboys discussion. You and I have had that deeply. Oh, the Dallas Cowgirls. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, I know. Uh, Hope springs eternal. And then when I saw my sister in February, she and I were the only people at Billy Bob's Honky Tonk not wearing cowboy boots. I somehow went to Texas, didn't bring my cowboy boots. Epic fail. Yeah, not good. One of the few times in my life that I looked around and I was like, God, I'm out of place. So Only a few times? Yeah, just a few times. Just a few times. All the time. Most of the time. So let me ask you the kind of inverse of the previous question. Any Texas markets that you are concerned about that you look at and you're like, I would, I would be incredibly selective about opportunities in this area. Certainly there's going to be stuff in every pocket that pencils out, but just be a little more cautious. Anything that puts you in that mode? You don't have to tee this one up for me. I've got my answer. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the real estate market in Houston. I'm not. There are so many reasons why. A lot of great economic value in Houston, a lot of businesses in Houston, a lot of just a lot of great economics in Houston happening. What a lot of people don't know, though, is that the real estate market is heavily correlated and tied to the oil industry, which is so heavy and prevalent in Houston. So when oil prices, like right now, are very high, the Houston market does really well. When oil prices, which have not traditionally been seen to, you know, have stayed relatively consistent, is very hard to to price and sell home outside of anywhere north of 500k, which I know sounds like a lot of money in general for a starter home, depending upon where you're from. The Texas market, though, that's a pretty standard starter home price is five hundred thousand dollars, and so. Reason why I'm not a big fan of Houston is that if we hold that loan for 13 months, something drastic can change. As we've seen with Ukraine and Russia, that has severely, you know, we saw something coming, but that changed the oil prices and the real estate market has changed in Houston because of that. Not to a significant degree, but I've seen ARVs significantly change um, within the last few weeks in that in that market, which is why I personally stay away from it. I don't love deals that come across my desk from Houston. I don't lend in Houston of my own money. I don't invest in Houston. So um, there will probably be some Astro fans and my Houston friends after me after that comment, but I'll bring, I'm here for it. H-Town, let's, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, second, second rate football team. But that's a, another yeah another discussion. So, so I've, I've picked your brain about Texas. I don't want to put you in a box. You know by virtue of your experience and current role – a map of the whole country. So zoom out and kind of walk through some of the same, like outside of Texas, what markets are are on your radar, very attractive? I have invested in, ironically, in some California markets, Palm Springs being one. That is, that's an area, especially for a short-term rental investment, huge market. A caveat, short-term rentals with just audience, like know what you're getting into with the short-term rental financing, how to operate that. That's for a whole other podcast discussion. So certain aspects and pockets of California make sense. Again, I love Texas market. Colorado is a big market of mine. Sunbelt cities or states. Arizona, another big market I watch. Florida is after COVID. Once COVID hit, Florida just took off. And we've seen that now in, in a lot of 
actions with a lot of finance companies. So traditionally, how I uh, look at the real estate market, I watch where finance companies move. And that tends to show how trends are going to project and move within a market. So that's at least from my experience and what I've, I've learned. And that's how I follow trends with real estate. So those are the areas that I would look at specifically state-wise. And we can get granular from city within those. Yeah, you, you just reminded me of your comment uh, about Schwab, Charles Schwab moving to Austin in 2018. So it seems like they, you know, they're definitely ahead of the curve there. Um, you had a lot of groups during COVID, a lot of finance companies moving, like you said, to Florida. Interesting. That's an interesting trend to watch. So yeah, what was interesting about COVID in Florida was that a lot of New Yorkers vacation in Florida. And so when COVID hit and New York City shut down, they just bought, they, they did year-long leases in Miami. So Brickell specifically, and in the finance district of Miami, just blew up. So the real estate market, Brickell was average rent went from somewhere of like $1,800 to like $4,500 in a matter of months. It was just, it was crazy. Then you have Wynwood, just as, you know, another suburb, you know, neighborhood in the Miami downtown area, right outside of it. Again, rents just skyrocketed. So it's just, it was just crazy. And the thing was, was that in that time, though, Alliance Bernstein, Blackstone, JP Morgan, they all bought like $50,000, 50,000 square foot offices in the Miami Finance Brickle District, which again, that's going to drive an increased prices in the real estate market. But it's watching where finance companies moving to because it indicates too, they probably have a vested interest in a company there and a large one at that. And, and then there's a lot of vested interest in their success and the company and the city's success with them moving there. So that is how I make finance and real estate decisions. That makes sense. And probably, you know, companies like that, Jamie Dimon and his crew, a lot of smart people there and doing their due diligence. So look, they've already kind of, they've done some pre-underwriting there for us all, it seems. Do a quick Google search of where finance, where are hedge funds moving offices? That's where I'm investing immediately. I love it. That'll be my guiding light. Oh, Google? Not, not shocked. No. Yeah, I know. Simple boy. But all right. <laughs> we'll keep the laughs going. Fun question. Also, by the way, we look like we should be on a Gulfstream on the way to buy up some companies. You see, this is, it's like little flower leaves for, for anybody listening and not looking. Kim and I are, are twinned up today. The glasses, the, uh, the nice festive golf polo covered by a little quarter zip. So very techy today. I like it. Oh, no, not techy. Very, uh, as I have from Texas, moved to South Carolina, is very finance finance style out here in, in the Southeast. There's, there's a uniform that's developed. It has. Indeed, indeed. So let me, let me pick your brain with a fun question. Let's do it. Let's dive into it. Worst deal you've been a part of. What's the, what's the one where you, you look back, the alarm bells go off. You're like, this was, this was a nightmare. And which side of the fence were you on? Was this something that you were lending on, something that you were involved in as a sponsor? Walk me through. Unpack the nightmare. So this was easy. Like, no thinking again on this one. Thanks for the tea up. Don't need it. It's funny when these get ingrained in your brain as you're like, oh, I've never taken that one out. So I, <laughs> this is not that long ago either. $5 million home financing. 
sourcing debt and equity for it, playing, not brokering. I'm not a broker, so I wasn't brokering, but sourcing capital raising for this $5 million Beverly Hills project. Found out when we were doing our due diligence on the property, there were like 10 squatters in it. And due to the laws in California, they had squatters' rights. So we had to start developing and figuring out how to pay them to get out of a home that wasn't theirs. And so it was just a complete disaster. And one that I'll never forget is uh, many, many conversations. A Texan being in, in California asking my former colleagues, how did this happen? <laughs> what went wrong? How, like, why, like, how did we get here? It will never be erased from, from my, my mind. <laughs> that is a story. So, so I'm not going to let you off the hook there. I have some follow-up questions. Please, please. Walk me through the squatters' rights payoff process. How in the world does that work? I am not a lawyer, so I don't want to get myself into a a legal situation here. So I won't speak to the nature of that, but I will say that there is some sort of money exchange that does happen for a quick and easy, we call cash for keys in the biz on the West Coast. That is interesting. That's a that's a deal, right there. It is. It is. Yeah. Should should you ever just want anything, just squat in the right place, I suppose. Yeah, I think you go into any deal with a healthy kind of punch list of potential audibles that might need to be called, but that's probably not one that's usually on the. I may run into this list. No, it was one that um, we found, though, came about after COVID quite consistently in California deals. So this was, it wasn't unique to California, but it was, it was a West Coast unique situation that was occurring. So there were, this was a thing all, all along the Pacific Northwest. That's the story. Well, I've got it. Okay, now I have a question for you. Ooh. Ready for this? All right, all right. Tales of turn. Gear up. What has been the most awkward conversation you've had on a podcast ah the most awkward conversation i've had on a podcast that's a tough one i have to th- i have to put my professional pc hat on too i uh, thankfully so this is episode 34 which is crazy to think that we started this thing at the end of september and putting out an episode every tuesday i knew I don't know. I, I thought this was going to be a small little tiny pet project when we started this and it's turned into so much more than that. And I've, I've grown so much from it. The networking and the people I've met, been able to talk with and pick their brains. That's just been an incredible experience. And I'm, you know, as I'm dodging your question, I'll, I'll circle back to it. Why don't I ask you this? Most interesting. Most interesting. That's, that's an, uh, so two people come to mind right off the bat. Episode number one, which was probably the fifth or sixth recording I did, but the first one that aired was Gary Beasley, CEO of Roofstock. Such an incredibly intelligent human being. And we probably spent somewhere between 30, 45 minutes after the episode of me just, hey, Gary, do you mind if I just pummel questions at you for the next half hour when we're not recording? He was absolutely gracious and allowed me to do that and then let me kind of poke under the hood a little bit with stuff that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have been best to be recorded and broadcasted. But that was a wonderful episode. And then another one, a gentleman by the name of William Sweet, NFL veteran, is around my age, based in Atlanta. I've done two episodes with him. 
so fun to see, even over the few months between episodes, new things that he's launching business-wise. He has a kind of a Tesla rental fleet in Atlanta now. And, you know, he's, he's, we stay in touch and I just follow him and kind of live partially vicariously through him and his NFL pedigree life. But he's so much, you know, that the NFL piece is so secondary to him. And hearing his origin story about working at a Jimmy John's and seeing the guy who owned a bunch of Jimmy John's franchises in the area. And he's like, I want that. I want that independence. I want to be able to wake up every day and I structure my day how I want to. I do what I want to. I don't show up to a nine to five, like just that complete independence. And this is, you know, being able to kind of check in with him periodically and, and follow his story he also, you know, invests in Georgia and in Florida with some transitional housing and just a real noble purpose. One other that comes to mind is Darian Dunn, an investor also in Atlanta. And he and his crew are super mindful about whenever they go into an area, you mentioned gentrification, right? They hold back a certain percentage of units and they put those units under market, right? So as to give the opportunity for folks who are in that area, they're not just getting pushed out because somebody comes in and scrapes a building or upfits it, jacks up the price, and then you can't afford it anymore. They're mindful about their impact in every community community that they go into. And it's so, so easy to cast away any type of purpose and just say, look, I have a fiduciary duty to investors and only focus on the, the dollars and cents and spreadsheets. But as I advance in age, as I become an old man here, I have a softer, softer spot. Oh, so that's what we call the triple bottom line as you get more, more vested into, uh, into business. It's not just about dollars and cents. It's the triple bottom line. I know. It's a beautiful thing. It's goodwill. Exactly. And, and there's, it's like, why would you not? Why would you not? It's, it's, you could go in and you could scrape down a building, you could outfit it many times above the class where it is, go through this and just not pay any attention to the current state of that community and just say, here's where I'm pushing it. Here's where I want to go. But folks like Darian Dunn, William Sweet, they really, truly, they don't just talk a noble purpose. They execute that and as a major part of their business plan. So those folks, those conversations, those are the ones that I really jive with because we get so much deeper than just dollars and cents. It's really understanding like their emotional buy-in to what they're doing. And it's, it's just above and beyond the dollars, which I've, again, as I kind of mature as a human, I appreciate that so much more. You, you said something that I tell, tell the team that I get the privilege of working with. It's not about, I always ask them, like, is it is something viable and does it make sense? And I don't think we ask ourselves that enough as like individuals, as a company, as employees, you know, like, does something make sense to do it? We tend to rely on, you know, we have, there's so much data in the world today that we rely on data. We've stepped away for some reason from this like internal gut check that we intrinsically all have. We know what feels good, what, like when we know something's right, we just have that natural innate ability. And I think we lose that. So I, I challenge and push my underwriters on my team. Like, does this make sense? Does this deal make sense? Even when I was starting businesses, like, does the business make sense? Is there a need for this? 
What are the pain points that we're addressing? Those are all things I think as companies, as that's where I start getting into fiduciary responsibility is, you know, how are we solving for problems rather than and pain points rather than just selling money? As private lenders, that's what we, we that's what we do. We sell money for real estate. But there are pain points within this industry that that aren't being addressed for borrowers, high tier borrowers, scaling borrowers that we don't talk about. We talk a lot about a whole bunch of things and we don't solve the, the biggest issue, which is that gap between, law, you know, call it the DR Hortons of the world and the, the borrowers who are scaling their business to get into that space. There's this like area of time where to scale, you're sort of in the startup phase. Maybe you're raising equity for your business, you're scaling, you're buying, you're acquiring properties to build. There's a huge need for, for financing, huge risk component, but that's why we're in private lending. Our money's not cheap, but, but we take risks and we should be. It's what, it's what we should be doing constantly, but we have to be smart about taking risks and, and where we're you know, drawing the lines and asking ourselves questions. I cannot think of a better note to end an episode on. And now after that, beautiful commentary. I now have an answer to my favorite episode. Wink, wink. So Kim, this one. Yeah, bingo. Director of short-term finance at Lima One Capital, a wealth of knowledge, a Texan. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me. I had a blast. Just want to stop you. Did you hear that, Chris Wilhoy? I was a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. The, the competitive streak continues. I, I love it. We got, we got a lot of A type A's around here. So Kim's clearly... An aspiring type A. So, no, you're a type A. I'm kidding. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Get in trouble. All right, Kim, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out lima1.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.